Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. It was just last week that we noticed that parts of the transgender movement seem to be getting militant and possibly dangerous. We did a whole segment about it on Thursday night. That segment was sparred by an NPR segment we had heard and never expected to hear. NPR is always, as a matter of editorial policy, completely opposed the civilian ownership of firearms, with the possible exception of maybe IRS agents. Yet here suddenly was that very same station, National Public Radio, firearms, with positively urging trans people to buy guns, as many guns as possible, and if necessary, to use them. The world is dangerous, explained one trans gun owner. You have to be dangerous back. And that seems strange to us. Is the United States really a dangerous place for trans people? Well, West Baltimore is dangerous. You could easily get murdered there. But if you're trans in this country, obviously there are many downsides, but there do appear to be some benefits. It's a lot easier to get into Harvard, for example. It's definitely easier to get a job at Citibank or in the Biden White House. If you're transgender can so much as fly a kite, the Pentagon will happily make you an F-35 pilot just so Hollywood can make a movie about it. Identifying as trans, whatever, again, its downsides, does convey status in this country, which is why so many young people now do. Not a lot of 19-year-olds are pretending to be car mechanics or linemen for a regional power company in eastern Ohio, but plenty of college freshmen do pretend to be members of the opposite sex. And why wouldn't they? The people in charge despise working-class whites, but they venerate the trans community. People are just responding to incentives. It's rational in a way. But that does not explain the anger that we heard in that NPR segment. Why are some trans people so angry and why do they seem to be mad specifically at traditional Christians? We can't think of any trans person who's ever been murdered by a pastor. As far as we know, that has never happened. So it's not an actual threat of violence from Christians that's inspiring some trans people to buy AR-15s. No, it's got to be more fundamental than that. And it is. The trans movement is the mirror image of Christianity and therefore its natural enemy. In Christianity, the price of admission is admitting that you're not God. Christians openly concede that they have no real power over anything and for that matter, very little personal virtue. They will tell you to your face that they are sinful and helpless and basically absurd. They're not embarrassed about any of this. They brag about it. That saved a wretch like me goes the most famous Christian hymn ever written in English. The trans movement takes the opposite view. Trans ideology claims dominion over nature itself. We can change the identity we were born with, they will tell you with wild-eyed certainty. Christians can never agree with this statement because these are powers they believe God alone possesses. That unwillingness to agree, that failure to acknowledge a trans person's dominion over nature incites and enrages some in the trans community. People who believe they're God can't stand to be reminded that they're not. So Christianity and transgender orthodoxy are wholly incompatible theologies. They can never be reconciled. They are on a collision course with each other. One side is likely to draw blood before the other side. That's what we concluded last week. Yesterday morning, tragically, our fears were confirmed. A self-identified trans person called Audrey Hale committed mass murder at a Christian school in Nashville. Hale burst into a place called the Convent School and executed three nine-year-olds as well as three adults. Police have released body cam footage from the end of the massacre. We're showing you just a small part of it. You can see the rest online if you want. We're not going to show it because that's too awful and sad. 
But what was almost as sickening to see in a far more subtle and insidious way was the media coverage of yesterday's tragedy. Here's Terry Moran of ABC News, for example, suggesting that Christians were murdered in Tennessee because they infringed on the rights of transgendered people. Watch. Audrey Hill was a, identified herself as a transgender person. Uh, it, state of Tennessee earlier this month passed and the governor signed a bill that banned transgender medical care for minors, as well as uh, a law that prohibited adult entertainment, including male and female impersonators after a series of drag show controversies in that state. The state of Tennessee bans the sexual mutilation of children. Children get shot to death in a school. It's cause and effect. That's what ABC News is telling you. That's not far from justifying mass murder, but others took the next step. A group called the Trans Resistance Network said that the shooter's death was a complex tragedy that resulted from, quote, anti-trans bias. The Hershey Chocolate Company's new trans spokesman, meanwhile, someone called Faye Johnstone, posted messages after the shooting complaining about, quote, trans misogyny. In Canada, a taxpayer-funded trans rights organization put out a statement that ignored the murder of the children in Nashville entirely and instead claimed that there has been a, quote, exponential rise in anti-trans violence. That is a lie. It's a provable lie. And in fact, the opposite is true. We seem to be watching the rise of trans terrorism. The man who tried to murder Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh after the repeal of Roe v. Wade identified as a, quote, trans gamer girl. The man who shot up a nightclub in Colorado in this past November and murdered five people identified as non-binary. And now this. And there could be more. Antifa has announced this coming Saturday is the, quote, trans day of vengeance. Vengeance for what? That's not explained. But the suggestion is there will be violence in Washington this weekend. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted about this today, because if there's a day of vengeance coming, the rest of us should probably know about it. And for doing so, immediately had her, had her official congressional Twitter account suspended. You're not supposed to talk about any of this, apparently. And the authorities in Nashville certainly are not planning to talk about it. They're doing their best not to. Here's the police chief of Nashville explaining that while he's happy to talk about the shooter's guns, he's not going to tell you anything about the shooter's motives. Watch. So in the manifesto, there's several different writings about other locations. Uh, there were locations, uh, there was uh, talks about um, the school. There was a map of the school, a drawing of how uh, potentially she would enter and the assaults that would take place. Uh, there's it's quite a bit of uh, writing the to school. it. I have not read the whole, the entire manifesto. Our team and the FBI has been working uh, on this. Well, that's interesting. Within what seemed like minutes, we saw pictures of the rifles and the pistol. We now have horrifying body cam footage from within the school. So unsettling, we're not going to show it to you. But somehow we can't see the manifesto in which the killer explains why she killed. Why is that? It's not accidental. Well, you know exactly why it is because it would make the obvious undeniable. The trans movement is targeting Christians, including with violence. Most Christian leaders in this country don't want to admit that. Admitting it might force them to take deeply unfashionable positions. But it is true, and anyone who's paying attention knows that it's true. And so, like most true things at this point, it is officially suppressed. 
Here, for example, is Joe Biden yelping again about how it's all your fault when these tragedies happen because you've got guns at home. This is from yesterday. We have to do more to stop gun violence. It's ripping our communities apart, ripping the soul of this nation, ripping at the very soul of the nation. And we, we have to do more to protect our schools so they aren't turned into prisons. You know, uh, the shooter in this situation reported we had two assault weapons and a pistol, two AK-47. So I call on Congress again to pass my assault weapons ban. So we're going to prevent you from learning why the shooter did it, and we don't have to guess because she wrote a whole manifesto about why she did it. And we know that she did that because she told a friend of hers on Instagram that she did it. But we can't see it. We can only talk about the guns. We can't know what kind of drugs she was taking, what kind of hormones or SSRIs or benzodiazepines. We can only guess. We can only talk about the guns. Pass my assault weapons ban. That'll fix the problem. But Joe Biden is lying about that. He knows that he's lying, and you know that he's lying. Yesterday's massacre did not happen because of lax gun laws. Yesterday's massacre happened because of a deranged and demonic ideology that is infecting this country with the encouragement of people like Joe Biden. Let's start by being honest about that. Tulsi Gabbard is in Nashville tonight, and she joins us. Congressman, thank you so much for coming on. Um, it seems calculated that the authorities in okay yeah. i'm gonna take a pause there on on getting tulsi gabbard's uh, perspective but look the essence of woke is that certain groups are above criticism all right you're on very shaky ground but you may possibly criticize jews blacks gays the transgendered as individuals but you absolutely cannot level any group-wide criticisms Right? You can level all the group-wide criticisms you want of Christians. You can level all the group-wide criticisms you want to make of white people. Right? You can level group-wide criticisms against Americans, Australians, the French, the, the Germans, the English. But you cannot level any group-wide criticisms against the protected groups. All right? Are we allowed to call her Audrey Hale? Because that's... Bro, are we dead-naming Audrey Hale? So, woke means that certain groups are above and beyond criticism. They are better than us. They are sacred groups. So, I, I, got, a, I got a friend who's very much... I've got various friends who are very much secular intellectuals of the left. And you can just see how upset they get at any reference to group differences. Right? That... Uh, that there might be, say, racial differences, ethnic differences, uh, religious differences. They just like, get really tense and, and it's like, let's not talk about this. It makes them so upset because this is absolutely sacred for them. Well, there are sacred groups such as trans who you're not allowed to criticize. Gays, you're not allowed to criticize gays as a group, all right? So we had this monkeypox outbreak because some gays were engaging in massive amounts of promiscuity even in the midst of a monkeypox group, and public health officials did not feel that they could call out gays and ask them to desist on you know, massive amounts of promiscuity. Now, they feel like they can tell regular Americans to mask up, to stay home, to not go to work, to not go to church, but they don't feel that they can ask gays to desist from participating in orgies with strangers. 
right? They feel perfectly entitled to tell you and to tell me what to do, that we should stay home from church, synagogue, from public gatherings, from going to work, that we should mask up. All right, they have no problems telling ordinary Americans how they should live their lives, but they feel very squeamish telling gays to desist from participating in orgies. Right? That's where we're at. That's the ridiculous level that we get to when we say that certain groups, gays, trans, Jews, blacks, women, all right, should be exempt from criticism. I mean, one reason you see so much, you know, bad behavior, particularly bad verbal behavior from women, is that, thank God, they've never been punched in the face, right? Most men have had the experience of being punched in the face, so they know that there are certain things that they can't say. So, looking at Twitter, a transgender shooter-killing Christian shows us the potential for aggression and even violence in victimhood movements is much larger than in the general public. Anything that is grievance-based leads to violence and death. That's grievance-based when it's at a high level of intensity. You walk around with a sense of grievance at a 2 out of 10, 3 out of 10, you're not going to be a threat to society or a threat to yourself. You walk around with a sense of grievance at a 7 out of 10 or higher, you're going to be a threat to yourself and to others. All right, this is uh, Sam Vaknin. Similarly, what I'm trying to say is that the potential for aggression and even violence in victimhood movements is much larger than in the general population. And even I would go as far as saying that it's equal to psychopathic movements. For example, the Nazi movement. Equal. Of course, the Nazi Nazism was a victimhood movement. Nazis presented themselves as victims of the Versailles Agreement, of the World Order. Germany was discriminated against, and, so and look on where it led. Similarly, communism was a victimhood movement. The proletariat was exploited by the landowners and by the industrialists, and so on. You know, we need to redress grievances. Anything that is grievance-based leads to violence and death. End of story. All death counts started as victimhood movements. ISIS is no exception. So it's Okay, so that's not fair. That's not accurate. It depends on the intensity. All sorts of things are just fine at a moderate level of intensity. All right? If you have a, a racial identity, all right, and you walk around in America and your racial identity is highly important to you, unless you're a member of one of the protected groups, all right, that's going to be heavily stigmatized if it comes out. But if you just walk around with a low level of racial identity, you're going to be just fine in a multicultural country. Right? You have a preference for your in-group, but it doesn't cause you to go out and do all sorts of horrible things. So any nationalism is going to contain a significant element of victimization. Right? You can't have in-group identity without a sense of victimization. Right? You can't have passionate, strong in-group identity without a sense of victimization, all right? You can't have nationalism without a sense of victimization. But in most instances, it doesn't serve you to walk around with a 5 out of 10 or an 8 out of 10 in intensity in your victimhood identity, right? Usually you'd be better off at a 2 out of 10 or a 3 out of 10. But a 2 out of a 10 or 3 out of 10 sense of victimhood, right? That serves you. It identifies you with your in-group. It gives you purpose and clarity in life, right? It uh, marks out the friend-enemy distinction, but it's not at such an intense level that you are then disabled from participating fully in life in a multicultural society. So you're not going to go out and commit crimes 
if you got a sense of victimhood at a two out of ten level. You're not going to go out and commit, you know, murder if you got a sense of victimhood at a three out of a ten, right? To do, you know, truly horrible things, you need to have a sense of victimhood at, you know, an eight out of ten or a nine out of ten. So all sorts of emotions, all right, they are, you know, just fine at lower levels of intensity. Let's get some more. more threatening than most people understand. Any No has been covering, he's been covering Antifa uh, for years now. He's the author of Unmasked Inside Antifa's Radical Plan to Destroy Democracy. He's a senior editor post millennial. He joins us tonight. Andy, thanks so much for coming on. Um, so, again, you don't want to get too broad brush here, but there is an extremist movement, obviously. It's very evident online in the aftermath of this mass murder. Are you surprised to see it? No. So in my reporting on Antifa for years now, one um, observation that I noticed was that disproportionately the number of riot arrestees uh, are gender diverse. And by that, I mean they don't identify with their biological sex. Um, on some nights, it was as high as 20 percent, and that is magnitudes higher than what the data we have on people in the in the a wider American population who are trans-identifying. So, you know, I looked into, into this a bit further. There is some peer-reviewed research out of Canada. You can find it on the Library of Medicine um, that shows um, that there's evidence that young transgender people are particularly vulnerable to violent radicalization. And in my reporting on left-wing extremism, in months, for months now, I've documented and tracked this surge in violent rhetoric by self-identified trans militant activists, particularly on Twitter, in response to various states restricting or banning the medical transitioning of minors. Um, as you mentioned earlier, the horrific murder of children and staff at the Christian school yesterday does come just days ahead of a so-called um, Trans Day of Vengeance that's being organized in the U.S. Capitol. And unfortunately, um, myself and other people who have reported on this and posted this flyer, which, by, by the way, that group is still online, if you posted the flyer, regardless of the context, um, you're locked out of your account. So currently, I cannot access my Twitter. Can, can I ask you just a quick macro question? So one of the reasons that so many well-meeting middle-aged moms in this country bought into support of the trans community is on the basis of the promise that it's liberation and this is kids when they finally express their true inner identity will be happier and better adjusted but the incidence of violence and mental illness seems to be extraordinary so it doesn't seem like people are being liberated it seems like people are being tormented and driven to, driven to the brink of insanity that just watching that seems clear it's the exact opposite of liberation. We have mountains of evidence that people who suffer from gender dysphoria also suffer from very high rates of um, mental health comorbidities. Um, when you have this reality on top of people being fed cross-sex hormones and yeah. are also being in an environment where they are encouraged to have a violent hatred of wider society, and you can see, see this in the reaction before, during, and after this, uh, this killing. Andy, no. Thank you for your incisive and, and very informed uh, analysis of this. Appreciate it. 
So there are obviously really important conversations that the entire country needs to have about the transgender movement, which is increasing in velocity, um, and about the overwhelming prevalence of doctor-prescribed pharmaceuticals in American households. Do they play a role in this? It seems like they do. Okay, so this is the Washington Post. All right. Uh, Police says Audrey Hale was transgender. She was biologically female. And there's a social media profile in which she uses masculine pronouns. But the Washington Post has not confirmed how Audrey Hale identified. (laughs) They have not confirmed. I mean, that's such an important aspect of the story. Washington Post has not identified how how Audrey Hale identified. In what world is it uh, particularly important how someone identifies when it's completely opposed to the, their biology. So all their chromosomes are male or female, but uh, they choose to be the opposite. And uh, the Washington Post has not confirmed how Audrey Hale identified. What a world we live in. So looking at some Twitter commentary here, this psychology that uh, Sam Vaknin discusses is why creating diverse societies while portraying some groups within them as victims of other groups makes those societies particularly susceptible to violence. We'll see more victim mindset violence throughout the diversified West. West, it's difficult to disaggregate what percentage of black on white attacks are driven by a black victim mindset as opposed to a standard perpetrator of violence mindset that affects all, but a good portion of black on white attacks may well be because they're taught that white people always oppress them. Now, if you are a victim and you do nothing, you just get kicked around forever. Well, the strong take what they want, the weak endure what they must. You can you know, find spiritual paths, psychological paths, adaptive paths, social paths for you know, dealing when you don't have as much power as you want and you can make alliances and build up your power levels. Yeah, you can be a 9 out of 10 in a sense of victimhood, when you're fighting for your life, right? If you're fighting for your life, I recommend 10 out of 10, 9 out of 10, 8 out of 10 sense of victimhood, right? If you're scrounging for food in the alleys of a bombed-out enemy-occupied city, 9 out of 10 sense of victimhood makes sense. The chat says the trans movement and identity is far stronger than any form of nationalism. Their ideology and movement truly transcends race, religion, and unites in their common goal, trans liberation. It is akin to Islamism. Well, so much to talk about, and let's let's revisit this. But first of all, I want to talk about uh, Washington Post article here. How Fox News is trying to guide its viewers away from Trump. This analysis was written by Philip Bump. How Fox News is trying to guide its viewers away from Trump. As of writing, there has been no use of the phrase pizza parlor on the Fox News website in the past week. At any other point, that would be easily explained away. Apparently, there was no news that unfolded at a pizza parlor or, applying the channel's expanded definition of news, no incident in which, say, a supporter of President Biden complained about the plastic straws at a pizza parlor because of critical race theory. Either way, no reason to talk about pizza parlors. Except that a lot of other media outlets ran the phrase pizza parlor in the past 24 hours, picking up on commentary that aired on Fox News. 
That was former President Donald Trump's dismissal of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Republican, in an interview on Hannity, during which Trump suggested that the governor's career was entirely a function of his 2018 gubernatorial endorsement. I got him the nomination, Trump told Fox News host Sean Hannity. By the way, he couldn't have never gotten the nomination. He would either be working in a pizza parlor place or a law office right now. That's quite a comment to make. But people perusing Fox News's website won't read it. A clip of So it's interesting how Fox News is doing everything they can to get in the way of Donald Trump winning the Republican nomination. Uh, Sean Hannity last night had the first interview with Donald Trump uh, live on the, the network in over six months, right? Six months, Fox went without interviewing Donald Trump. It's probably had north of 40 interviews with Ron DeSantis during that time. But in the final analysis, Fox News is not the boss. You know who's the boss? The people who choose whether or not to tune into Fox News or some other news outlet. So Fox News is absolutely terrified of losing their viewers. They want to promote anyone but Donald Trump to win the Republican nomination but they cannot afford to alienate their viewers, so they're just trying to gently guide their viewers away from Donald Trump. Trump's lengthy comments on DeSantis is available at Hannity's page on the Fox News website, including a headline that quotes Trump's, almost certainly untrue, claim that DeSantis came to him with tears in his eyes seeking his endorsement. But that same snippet of video, again as of writing, doesn't appear on Fox News's YouTube channel. Two other clips from Hannity's lengthy interview are shown. This is how it often works at Fox News. The heavy hand of the network's executives, including executive chairman Rupert Murdoch, was articulated explicitly in internal messages produced as part of a defamation lawsuit filed by an electronic voting machine company. But it was obvious before that. Yeah, it's, it's been obvious that, uh, that uh, Fox News is political in, in the way it tries to shape the news in, in, a, in a far more ham-handed, clumsy manner than its competitors so it's just kind of ridiculous they went six months without interviewing donald trump live on the air they're doing absolutely everything they can to promote ron DeSantis. they're you know just scared to death of their viewers <laughs> it's great it's some tucker we told you in the open about thursday's show in which we noted some pretty remarkable and we thought significant reports from npr the state's funded broadcaster that really is the mouthpiece of the neoliberal establishment. So first, NPR complained about a trans person being evicted without mentioning that this very same person had shot a police officer in the head because the trans community can do no wrong even when they shoot cops. And then, at the same time they were calling for disarming you, NPR told trans people to hurry up and formed armed militias. Watch. Here's that same national public radio state radio, state media, controlled by the Biden administration, encouraging people to go to the gun store immediately. But not all people, just trans people. Guns are bad, except in the hands of trans people. Wow. Here's more. Groups like Rainbow Reload exist around the country, often called Pink Pistol Clubs. It's a place for experts and the gun curious to practice and in pursuiting. But this goes beyond hobby. There's a practical goal here, to prepare and protect themselves. If the world is dangerous, then you have to be dangerous back. And that very much has pushed me into um, where I am now. 
So that segment aired Thursday night, and trans groups across the country made fun of it, mocked it. The Rainbow Youth Project said that we are, quote, afraid gun-toting trans people will start political violence. Well, we were concerned about that, and for good reason, it turns out. Jason Rance joined us last week for that segment. He joins us again now. Um, Jason, this is kind of the last trend you want to be right about, but it was obvious, it seemed. Uh, Steve Saylor often mentions that the nastiest people that he has had to deal with are trans. That's just his lived experience, all right? I haven't had uh, bad experiences with trans people, but uh, that's Steve Saylor's lived experience. Who am I to question the moral clarity that evolved from Steve Saylor's lived experience? Great column by Jack Schaefer in Politico. Stormy Daniels and Karl Rove know how to beat Donald Trump. This is a real strategy for Ron DeSantis. So right now, it looks like Ron DeSantis is fumbling. Now, should DeSantis stage preemptive strikes? Strikes? Should he start insulting Donald Trump? No, you're not going to insult uh, Donald Trump and defeat him that way. All right. So is there a way to be effective? All right. Not even Ted Cruz, a college debate champion and graduate of Harvard Law School, could land a punch on Donald Trump in 2016. So Trump's vulnerabilities reside in his positives, and that's where Ron DeSantis should probe for cracks and fissures. All right, so GOP campaign strategist Karl Rove was famous for eroding an opponent's strengths. For example, under the Karl Rove lens during the 2004 presidential campaign, patriotic war veteran Senator John Kerry was portrayed as a weakling when he challenged President George W. Bush, who, unlike Kerry, spent the Vietnam War in the Texas Air National Guard. So Rove told Fox News in 2007, people's strengths often turn out to be their really big weaknesses. People tend to accentuate things that they think are big and important, and they exaggerate them. So what are Trump's positives? So he promised to build the wall, and he really didn't do much. So Ron DeSantis could easily outdo Donald Trump on border security. He could savage Donald Trump's border wall as an illusion. He could squeeze Trump on Trump's COVID response. And Ron DeSantis has already moved to the right of Donald Trump with his vaccine skepticism. And he's, uh, Ron DeSantis has taunted Donald Trump, saying that voters approved of Ron DeSantis' policies and they rejected Trump's because Ron DeSantis won re-election and Donald Trump lost. All right, Trump's North Korea policy could be a big ripe target for Ron DeSantis. He could ridicule Donald Trump for having achieved nothing more in his romance with Kim Jong-un than the exchange of perfumed love letters. Now, Trump has long claimed to represent working and middle-class voters who have been discarded by the political elites. Right? Ron DeSantis could puncture Trump's populist appeal by depicting that crusade as a sham of hot air. Ron DeSantis could compile a greatest hits compilation of the goofiest White House moments from the tell-alls investigative books about the Trump administration to tarnish Trump's alleged leadership skills. He could accuse Trump of going soft on, on Biden. So Ron DeSantis must play offensive, and the best example of how to play offensive against Trump can be found in a recent piece by scholar, scholar Jennifer Mercier, whose 2020 book, Demagogue for President, the Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump, throws a bright light on his dark rhetorical skills. So this rhetoric professor judges that porn star Stormy Daniels has bested Trump over the course of her five-year public battle with him. So Stormy Daniels has refused to be intimidated by Trump's threats. She's shrugged off his lawyer's attempts at coercion. 
She did not let Trump reduce her to an object of scorn or hatred. When she retaliated against him, it was with the artillery of humor, insulting his manhood. So, Ron DeSantis wants to win. He needs to get into training with uh, Stormy Daniels. <laughs> and uh, that, that, that might be fun to uh to see Ron DeSantis, you know, up his rhetorical game, at least give uh Donald Trump more more of a battle. Right, let's get a little bit more here from uh Tucker Carlson. Joe Biden wasted no time. And Joe Biden, whenever you think of him, really his signature quality is the willingness to say anything, literally anything. And he jumped into this tragedy, the mass murder of Christian children, to demand the seizure of all effective rifles in the United States. And today his press secretary, who like him, will say anything, repeated it. We need Republicans in Congress to show some courage. This is what they owe these parents. This is what they owe these family members who are losing their loved ones. They need to show courage. We need gun safety laws, comprehensive gun safety laws. We need to, to ban assault rifles. Those weapons of war do not belong in our streets. They not, do not belong in schools. And again, this is unacceptable, and you're going to continue to hear from the president call this out. The brazenness of a moral lecture from that person hours after these children are murdered by the ideology they promote, it's, it's really, it, it's almost beyond description. Colleen Noir is an advocate for the Second Amendment. He's seen a lot of these, probably not shocked as we are, joins us tonight to respond to it. Um, this does seem, even by the standards of the Disarm the Population group, this does seem pretty shameless. No, it, it really is, especially considering the amount of information. Okay, so we'll keep an eye on these different stories. But uh, what, the best book I, I've read in the past year is Ronnie Goodman's book on conservative claims of cultural oppression. So here's his section on the transgendered. Conservatives are inclined to deny the right of transgendered individuals, say a biological male who self-identifies as a female, the right, their right to access public restrooms designated for the opposite biological sex. Right? And liberals typically dismiss this opposition as just another narrow bigotry. But conservative opposition need not rest on bigotry. Right? They could make the following argument. Biological male is within his rights to self-identify as a female and assign this self-conception you know, preeminence over his biological status. But it is unreasonable for the transgendered individual to expect others to do the same for him. Right? For other people for whom such a disjunction between biology and identity is entirely foreign. So his sexual self-identification is an individual matter, but his biological sexuality is a public matter, and others have a right to respond to what they can see and hear. Right? I don't get to control my reputation. I don't get to control how you think of me, neither do the transgendered, because my reputation does not belong to me. My reputation resides in your head. Right. My identity, right, in large part resides in your head. Right. You cannot carry on an identity if everyone else is denying, not playing along, not recognizing your identity. So you don't get to set the terms 100% of your identity because we all, we live in a society. We are profoundly influenced 
by how other people react to us. All right. If I converted to Orthodox Judaism and Jews didn't accept me, all right, then even though I'd gone through the bureaucratic procedure of conversion, if I did not find solace, connection, community, bonding, and acceptance within the Orthodox Jewish community, my Orthodox Jewish community, my Orthodox Jewish identity would wither away. All right. Our identities in large part depend upon other people you know, feeding back to us how we see ourselves. So we don't get to just unilaterally proclaim an identity and then demand that other people indulge us, right? So I constantly get uh, alt-right people coming in the chat and say, you're not Jewish, Luke. And it doesn't bother me in the least because th there's no reality to it. If, if it bothered me, right, you would see it, it bothered me. Oh, my God, that, you know, some stranger who doesn't know anything about Judaism is coming in the chat to tell me I'm not Jewish. But because I have genuine community connection, bonds, you know, feel at home in the Orthodox Jewish community, I walk around to different Orthodox synagogues, I'm counted in the minion, there's nothing in Orthodox Jewish life that I can't do. I've become, you know, full, fully fledged member of the Orthodox Jewish community. So it's just silly when people who know nothing about Judaism come into the, the chat and go, oh, you're not really Jewish, all right? But if uh, nobody accepted me as Jewish, right? Even after I jumped through all the hoops and went through all the privations and uh, did the full Orthodox Jewish conversion, then that would that would bother me and it'd be verging on the impossible to maintain an identity. So if you're born biologically male and become convinced when uh, that you're really a female and no one supports that identity, it'll be verging on the impossible to be able to maintain this image of yourself as as female when you're biologically male. Right? So both sides here express equal but ultimately incommensurable frameworks of identity. So the man who thinks he's a woman is going to be on the losing end of this conflict, not because of prejudice, but because of utilitarian calculus resting on one, a social consensus that the sexes should be provided with separate restrooms, two, that he is in the minority, and three, that the resources that can be expended on public restrooms are finite. So someone is going to be made to feel uncomfortable, and it is the greatest good of the greatest number that determines who this will be. So if the primary purpose of public restrooms was to serve as forums for authentic self-expression, then the charge of bigotry might hold, because restrictions on transgendered individuals' freedom here could be construed as denial of their basic dignity. But this is clearly not the primary purpose of public restrooms. That's why utilitarian calculus is more appropriate. So conservative resistance to transgendered rights from, from a liberal perspective reflects the, the conservative's failure to rise above the peculiarly human emotions, right? To rise above the natural equation of biological sexuality and ultimate identity. So from a liberal perspective, conservatives uh, displaying a failure of virtue, a failure of discipline, a failure to resist the reflexive common sense. All right, so liberals characterize, you know, conservative inclinations as prejudice, right? A failure of enlightenment. These are all symptoms of irrational animus. It's a failure to transcend ordinary embodied perception toward a higher state of spiritual purity and freedom. And you can see why liberalism came from secularized Protestantism. Because Protestantism, you know, got rid of the rituals. It got rid of an embodied practice of religion, an embodied way of relating to God. 
to embrace something that is just purely spirit. So liberals look at conservatives as Neanderthals because conservatives have failed to embrace the kind of emotional asceticism that would facilitate this transcendence of the body. So liberals see conservative opposition to transgenders using the bathroom of their choice as, as just prejudice. It's uh, a failing to achieve a spiritual ideal. So conservatives sense this as the unacknowledged imposition of the liberal hero system. And this predictably spawns resentment then towards the transgendered individuals through whom the imposition is being implemented. Okay, Christopher Cordwell has come out with another amazing article. This one is on India. And I just I just put down $30 to subscribe to the Claremont Review of Books because this looks so good. It's on the rise of Hindu nationalism. All right, Christopher Corwell, Claremont Review of Books. So he talks about India's Prime Minister Modi wins big because Indians see him as the embodiment of a different idea of India, a majoritarian idea of India, right? And the majoritarian idea of India, just like the majoritarian idea of the United States, is one that has been suppressed throughout the 20th century. And uh, Christopher Cordwell talks about the stupidity of bracketing Modi with Trump and other Western populists. Western populist leaders are all, in one way or another, trying to stem the decadence of their once great countries. Modi's India has plenty of problems, but decadence is not one of them. So India's 1949 constitution, the first great modern affirmative action constitution before America's 1960s second constitution. Well, Soviet Union was the affirmative action empire, so he's not right here. So this is what he writes. The Indian Constitution, one of the world's longest, was ratified in 1949. It managed the relationship between castes and faiths as the British Raj had, giving each of India's major religions the leeway to run its own affairs. So an Indian Muslim, even today, has the liberty to practice polygamy, while an Indian Hindu does not. What was most innovative about the Indian Constitution was that it invented the modern practice of affirmative action. That's wrong. That was largely pushed forward by the Soviet Union starting in the 1920s. So Hindus who are neither tribal nor religious minorities and belong to one of the middle unprotected castes felt like white heterosexual males in the 21st century United States. So the Indian Constitution was a bag filled with goodies for everyone but them. So the Indian Steve Saylor strategy, all right? The time when the non-diverse majority finally wake up to their majority status. So Muslims were long especially loyal to the ruling Indian system because it held down the majority. Right? The system might be said to have stabilized the country by allowing minorities acting in concert to tie down the Hindu Goliath. But Hindus were discontented with it, just like in America and white Christians. There was a potential danger should the Hindu majority ever begin behaving like a patronage-seeking vote bank, as it had incentives to do, then the whole system might erupt. And the very same thing could happen in the United States. So whether cautiously or credulously, the George W. Bush administration accepted the anti-Modi view, denied him a U.S. visa in 2005. The Obama administration lifted the ban. So India's human rights activists and English language press tried to present Modi as the scourge of Islam in hopes of driving him out of politics. 
but there wasn't sufficient evidence to justify this, and describing him that way had the opposite effect on Hindus across India. So Modi's party, the BJP, right, has you know, won election after election after election in India over the past, what, 12 years? So moderate members of the BJP planned on calling on Modi to resign, but when Modi spoke, the crowd gave him a deafening roar of support. From that point on, Modi was a national leader. Modi's detractors commonly call his party Hindu nationalists. It would be better described as Hindu and nationalist. So Modi puts chickens in pots and he fills the potholes and he builds the toilets. So like Erdogan in Turkey, Modi sees himself as replacing a bureaucratic elite based in the capital with a more entrepreneurial elite based in the provinces. And like Viktor Orban in Hungary, Modi is bent on using the state to give even those who don't agree with him you know, lots of reasons to vote for, the, for him. So he really has almost nothing in common with uh, Donald Trump. Moonman says, God thinks Luke is Jewish. Why would he care what a wigdat thinks? <laughs> what else is going on here in the chat? We want to know, Luke, if you're getting a hairpiece. Nope, I am not. So India's digital administrative reforms have fixed their once slothful elections so that votes are counted now in hours and not in days, right? They're more efficient than the United States. In the United States, bachelorhood is a reason to worry that a politician is a weirdo. A country like India, Modi's bachelorhood argues for his incorruptibility. So the BJP, the ruling Indian party, is a chair through the window of a very self-satisfied Congress in India and the broader Anglophone cultural elite come to regard Indian democracy as a personal fief and indeed their guarantor of lifelong employment. So when progressives change, charge is about protecting minorities from majorities, it can become not just undemocratic but anti-democratic. So the BJP revolution is a democratic uprising taking place under idiosyncratic conditions. It is both more innocent and more dangerous than it looks. It happened because India's government for too long took no account of its majority's ethnic identity. Hindu grievances were delegitimized as bigotry. They were left to fester till Hindu politicians and activists laid hold of powerful symbols. And by then it was too late. The majority in India began to vote like minorities. And that could happen in America. The majority might start voting like minorities. And it was too late for the Indian elites to keep them out of power. So the problem of respecting the decisions of majorities while defending the rights of minorities is an anthropological one, not a moral one. We like to pretend that when it comes to balancing majority and minority interests, there is a knowledgeable, knowable right thing to do. Often there isn't. You also like to pretend that protecting minorities always means protecting them against abuse and persecution by majorities. Sometimes it does, but just as often it means that claiming prerogatives for minorities against the innocent preferences of democratic majorities. So when progressives, when progressive change is about protecting minorities from majorities, it can become not just undemocratic, but uh, anti-democratic. So... You've heard about Israel's new government. Supposedly, it's uh, a real threat to democracy. Very scary stuff. Us to 
defense minister, his wife, Gilat, wrote on Facebook that her home had been broken into and claimed that Jewish power activists were responsible. Ben Gavir sued her for libel. Four months later, she issued a detailed statement in which she wrote, Although Ben Gavir presents a veneer of a right-wing extremist, he had served for many years as an agent for the Shin Bet, with the goal of gathering information on extreme right-wing activists and besmirching the rightist camp with provocations. Bennett did not disclose how she got that information. Her family declined to comment for this article. A month later, she and Ben Gavir reached an out-of-court settlement, and she issued a formal apology, withdrawing her claims. In 2015, Ben Gavir, dressed in white, attended a wedding in Jerusalem for a young couple in his circle. After the ceremony, the music came on, and the men broke into an ecstatic dance, holding aloft not only the groom, but also knives, assault rifles, and what appeared to be a Molotov cocktail, passing them from hand to hand. One of the guests then raised a picture of a baby, while another repeatedly stabbed the picture with a knife. The baby's name was Ali Dawabshe. Five months earlier, in the West Bank village of Duma, Jewish arsonists had firebombed a Palestinian home, burning baby Ali and his parents to death and critically injuring his four-year-old brother. Many at the wedding were friendly with the main arsonist, who had since been convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Ben Gavir was his attorney. Though Ben Gavir can be seen smiling in a video from the wedding, he has maintained that he did not witness the display of weapons or the picture of the baby, which he called stupidity. Before Ben Gavir entered parliament in 2021, he was Israel's leading attorney for suspected Jewish terrorists, settlers, and the far right. Literally the devil's advocate, one legal observer told me. It's highly unusual in Israel for a man with 50-odd indictments to practice law, and Ben Gavir secured his license only after a two-year battle with the Israel Bar Association. Among those who resisted certifying him was Yori... G so Ben Gavir has learned to play within the Overton window, right? He is now in an incredibly powerful position in Israeli politics because he learned to operate just within the Overton window. Garon, then the chair of the bar. Garon told me, we would hope that the Bar Association would not populate its ranks with a person who has a criminal record, let alone one who has not been rehabilitated. Yet even Ben Gavir's critics concede that he is a talented litigator. Not long after he began practicing, he defended a Jewish settler charged with attacking a Palestinian man in Hebron. In court, Ben Gavir asked the main witness for the prosecution to confirm that the person in the defendant's box was the suspect. The witness did, and then Ben Gavir revealed that he had secretly swapped out his client for another man. The judge dismissed the case. As his legal reputation grew, Ben Gavir managed to distance himself from the innermost circle of extremism. Still, he didn't seem to soften his views. My style is different he reportedly said in 2016, but ideologically, I haven't changed. I don't recall Ben Gavir ever arguing that it was wrong to hurt an innocent Palestinian, a man named Dove Morell told me. Morell, who is 28, was a guest at the Wedding of Hate, as the event became known in Israel. It was he who had held up the picture of baby Ali. I look back on it now, and I'm horrified.
he said when I met him recently on the campus of Tel Aviv University, where he is a law student. He was easy to spot amid a throng of young people. A thick-set man with a ginger beard and a large-knit skullcap. After footage from the wedding leaked to the Israeli press in 2015, Morel's parents sent him to stay with relatives in Wisconsin and New Jersey. There, he told me, he was exposed to libertarian and feminist Facebook groups and slowly underwent a reckoning. He is now active with the left-wing political party, Moretz. He sounded genuine in his attempt to recall his mindset at the time. One of my idols was Himmler, Morel told me. Shocking, I know. But when you read his diaries, you see a man grappling with the horrible things the Nazis were doing, yet still believing in the race theory. I really identified with that. I knew that what I was doing was harmful, but I thought that it was right. Later, Morel learned that the diaries had been heavily rewritten. Last April, Morel was convicted of incitement to terrorism, as were six other wedding participants, including the groom. Though he is now firmly in the left, as he put it, he still supports the movement to allow Jews to pray on the Temple Mount, which they are currently prohibited from doing so that Muslims can worship at the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the same site without risking violent confrontations. As part of his religious activism, Morel came to know Ayala Ben-Gavir. He described her and Ben-Gavir as amazing people who want to do terrible things. Those on the far right did not consider themselves extremists, Morel said. When you believe that the world came with manufacturers' instructions, then you have to follow those instructions. In the spring of 2021, a month after Ben-Gavir joined Parliament, his allegiances as a politician were tested for the first time. In the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of East Jerusalem, Palestinian residents were engaged in a five-decade legal battle to keep their homes, which sit on land that has been claimed by settlers. That May, Israel's Supreme Court was expected to issue a decisive ruling. Fearing expulsion, the residents erupted in nightly protests. After a week of unrest, Ben-Gavir showed up. He set up a desk for himself, planted the Israeli flag, and hung a massive sign that declared the spot, the Bureau of Knesset member ben So Israel is in a very dangerous neighborhood, and there's something about living in a dangerous neighborhood that tends to clarify people's thinking. So those Americans who have the most liberal views on race have the least experience with different races, right? The Americans with the most positive views of blacks, generally speaking, have the least interaction with blacks. And... Jews in Israel, right, in, in a tiny nation surrounded by Arabs and Muslims who want to destroy the nation and destroy the Jews along with it, right, they have to be far more realistic than people who live safely, prosperously, you know, without, you know, unwanted interaction. Whoa. So, when you're very smart, you're going to be much more likely to live in an abstract world. And a lot of great things can come out of living in an abstract world, but you also simultaneously become more and more disconnected from reality, which is why so many really smart people are just so you know, incredibly, seemingly disconnected from, from reality. Okay, that's going to do it for tonight. Take care. Bye-bye.